Well, hey, welcome to Sojourn. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm a pastor here at Sojourn, and it is good to gather with you on this beautiful June Sunday that we're having. Uh, if this is your first time here, as Tom said, we're uh, glad that you're here this morning. Uh, it's always just good to see uh, familiar faces and new faces. And so we hope that this is your first time here. Or you've been coming even for a few weeks that, uh, that you'd get to know some people here. That This would be a community and a church family uh, that you could find yourself being a part of. And so we'd love to help you do that. Uh, you can come say hello to me after the service or talk with one of our uh, Connect folks out in the lobby uh, after we're done here this morning. Uh, but every week we uh, spend time singing together. We spend time in God's Word together. We now spend time uh, opening up God's Word for the preaching of God's Word. And so if you need a Bible this morning, would you just raise your hand? We'd love to pass one of those out to you so you can read along with us this morning. We're going to be in the book of Matthew, uh, as we have been for the last few months in a series that we're in, and we'd love for you to be able to read along with us. If you don't actually own a Bible, uh, feel free to take that home with you. We want to give that to you as a gift. We believe God's Word is important and wants you to have uh, a copy of it. Uh, but as we begin our time each week, we just want to go to the Lord in prayer and asking that He would bless this time. So would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful to be able to, to be here this morning, to gather together as your people. We're grateful to have... Uh, friends and family here. We're grateful for those that are here this morning that don't yet know you. And Father, I pray that no matter where we're at in our spiritual journey today, that what would happen in the rest of our time together is that we would be drawn closer to you. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that as we open up your word now, as we look at even a challenging text this morning of Jesus's words to us today, that you would soften our hearts, that you would pierce our hearts with truth, that you'd bring about conviction and change. And Lord, we pray that your word would be effective in our lives this morning. And we also pray that your word would be freeing to us today. So we pray that you do that work for your glory and for our good. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Last week, uh, began the sermon talking about Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, Today, we're moving on to Tom Cruise. So, in 2002, there's a movie that Tom Cruise did called The Minority Report, and maybe you've seen that movie, maybe you haven't, but Tom Cruise's character, Tom Cruise's character is, uh, is on the run for a crime he might commit, and if that doesn't make any sense to you, you should go watch the movie, it's pretty good, uh, but it happens in the year 2054 in the D.C. metro area. And, and he's running away uh, from this, the, the police and everything, trying to get away from them. But something that technology has uh, come up with, that there's a technological advance, is they use eye scans uh, to be able to identify people, to track people, to even market to people. You walk in a store, and the store scans your eyes to have a personal shopping experience because it knows that you're in the store. So it actually scans your eyes wherever you go. And so, uh, so Cruz's character knows that they can track him by just looking at his eyes, scanning his eyes. So he decides he needs new eyes. So he finds a, a black market doctor to essentially remove his eyes and give him the eyes of a dead person so that he can have new eyeballs. So that when he walks into some place or somebody scans his eyes, they won't know that it's him. No longer does he have his own eyes, he has Mr. Yakamoto's eyes. Now, while there's been leaps and bounds in science and in the health industry uh, for prosthesis, for, for new hands and new arms and new legs and all those kinds of things, for people to be able to operate and live their lives semi-normal, one thing science hasn't been able to yet do is actually have full eye transplants. You can get your corneas transplanted, you can have your cataracts removed, you can have LASIK surgery to improve your vision, but full eye replacement is not yet possible. And so as we come to our text today, we see that Jesus makes a bold statement about our eyes. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, 
tear it out. So what in the world is Jesus talking about in this? And why does this matter for you and for me? What does it have to do with your life and my life? Well, all these questions I hope we can answer today, and I hope that we can understand more of the inverted nature of Jesus' inverted kingdom. Because see, the topic we're going to look at today as Jesus talks about our eyes, as we focus in on this, is Jesus is dealing with specifically sexual sin. He's addressing that in our lives. He's addressing that in our culture. And it's an important area for us to look at because so many of us struggle with it. And we live in a culture, as we said last week, that's very sexualized. And so my hope today is that we will see, what we'll see is that we can and we need new eyes. And that's exactly what Jesus is calling us to. But these new eyes don't come through a back alley doctor. They don't come through advanced medical procedure or self-mutilation. They don't even come through community intervention. They come through Jesus. And so my hope today is this will be both corrective and encouraging to us. So may God bless the preaching of his word this morning. If you haven't already, flip open to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 27 through 30 this morning. 27 through 30. Jesus says this to us. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now last week we looked at this text along with the next few verses. And the main focus in our point last week was really seeing that one of the things Jesus is addressing, one of the things that he's flipping on its head and teaching about his kingdom is how we relate to and treat women in our culture. The ancient world saw women as objects to use and discard when done. And so Jesus seeks to redeem that. He seeks to redeem that because Jesus is a redeemer. He comes to bring redemption and restoration and restoring the image of God in men and women together, both who bear the image of God. But I want to come back to this text today and look at it this week and look at it to address another issue that really all of us, again, all of us deal with or confronted with in our lives and in our culture, and that is sexual temptation and sin. And Jesus says some strong things here. And and what he says is not only necessary and and needed for his culture and the people that he's talking to specifically that are sitting right in front of him, it's it's necessary and, and, and important for us as well in our culture. Because we live in this culture that, as I said last week, says the mantra of our culture, the, the, the theme of our culture is, I don't care how I want it now. We, we want what we want and how we want it right now with immediacy. And, and that's especially true in the area of sexuality. And we see that currently in our world right now, redefining what sexuality really looks like, redefining what's most important in our lives and making it all about us. And so this morning, I want to try and answer three questions that we, as we look at this text. What is Jesus talking about? Why is he talking about it? And what is he actually calling us to? So what is Jesus talking about? Now these religious leaders, these law experts who who sought to define the law in a way that they could actually live it out. So they were all concerned with outward conformity. They were concerned with their behavior and their obedience. As long as they looked good and sought to live life in a way that no one else could really question, then they thought they were good. They thought that they could live life in a way to please God just by their behavior and their actions. And so they, they sought to limit things in God's law that was more attainable for them to actually live it out. 
So in this case, they sought to limit the scope of sexual sin. They essentially thought, well, listen, the Ten Commandments say not to commit adultery. Adultery is having a sexual relationship with someone who's not your spouse. I'm not doing that, and so I'm good to go. Let's move on. Box checked. We're all good. We're all done. But here what we see is Jesus is doing over and over again in this text in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is he's widening the scope. He's helping us to understand the true intent of God's law and what it looks like to live life in the kingdom. And so here he's widening the scope of what sexual sin is and its effects. See, it isn't just about outward behavior. It's about the intentions of your heart. See, I think too often what we all try to do, not just the law experts, not just these Pharisees, not just religious people. We all seek to put limits on and create litmus tests for our sin. And so we sit there and we say, well, this over here is sin, and this over here isn't sin. So as long as I don't go over here and I stay over here, then I'm good. God will be pleased with me. And so we try to make these borders and lines and rules and regulations in our life to try and limit those things out, separate those things out. But when we do that, we miss the heart of the matter. Because the heart of the matter is that sin is a matter of your heart before it's ever a matter of your behavior. It's a matter of your heart before it's ever a matter of our behavior. And that's really important for us to get. Because all of us have what we call legalism residing in our hearts. It's not just about rules or regulations someone else puts on you. We all like to live in a way where we can check boxes off and prove that we're pleasing, living a life that's pleasing to God. And Jesus is continuing to try and blow that up. And in this case, he's getting to the heart of all sexual sin. See, when the Bible talks about sexual sin or it talks about sexual immorality, which it talks a lot about, and the reason it talks a lot about it is because, again, I think we struggle with it in all kinds of different ways in our lives. But when it uses these phrases and talks about these things, it includes anything that's sexual outside of marriage between one man and one woman. So what that means is this is not just addressing married men, it's addressing all people, all of us. Now, sex is a good thing. God has given it to his people as a gift. It's for procreation and for pleasure. But sin has distorted the good things of God. It's turned good desires that God gives to us into controlling desires. And these controlling desires then make us worshipers of ourselves and of creation and of pleasure and of comfort. And so we take something that God's given to us that's good and we we distort it. It gets all jacked up. And the problem with this is that the church oftentimes throughout history has done a poor job of helping us understand the goodness of something. So in the area of sexuality, the church hasn't always done a good job. It said a lot of wrong things about sex, making it seem like it's, 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 it's gross and it's ugly and something we shouldn't really talk about. Instead of seeing it redeemed and seeing God's created it for our good. But we also need to know and follow what God says because he's king. See, we can't overcorrect and go back and say, well, I don't really like how the church has always talked about this, so I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. No, God's the creator of this beautiful thing, and so we need to submit to and follow him and believe that what God says is good is actually good. Not what feels good to us, not what feels right to us, but coming back and saying, I want to be living within the means and the design of God because everything God created is good. So again, last week we said, that we really think Jesus is is intentionally talking to men here. This isn't just an oversight or anything like that. It's not something we should just brush under the rug. Jesus is intentionally talking to men here because men, in particular, need to rethink, in light of Jesus' inverted kingdom, how they are to consider and think of and relate to women. Women are not to blame for the sexual sin of men. 
whether that's adultery or lustful looks. And so Jesus is calling men to take responsibility in their lives and in their relationships. To take responsibility and not blame others for those things. And so this presses on how they engage women, how men engage women. Women that they know and women that they don't know. See, I think one of the key things that Jesus is doing here is he's pressing on the reality and the the existence of private sexual sin. Adultery would have been something that might have been known, you could have been caught with, but when we have lustful intent in our heart, just within our our thinking and, and internally, no one can really sometimes knows about that. And so Jesus is pressing in on that. In particular, an area that I think that he doesn't specifically reference but would certainly be included is the area of pornography. Because pornography is a struggle for so many people. And it's often private. It's not something we often share with others. We don't relate to others on. We feel either embarrassed or shameful of it or we don't want to let anyone know about it. Pornography is a struggle for many men, but new studies have even shown that it's also a struggle for women. So that means that sexual temptation and sin is not just something men deal with, it's something that women deal with as well. So though Jesus is specifically addressing men here, calling men to take responsibility, calling men to cherish women and value them, the implications for this is for all of us, men and women alike. Because in either case, and this gets to, again, much of what Jesus is addressing, is that sexual sin in all forms objectifies people. It objectifies men. It objectifies women. And when we objectify someone, we see them as an object and not a person. And so when we see someone as an object and not a person, it's easy to use and discard when we're done. But Jesus is trying to reestablish and redeem something that we would look at all people as valuable. We look at all people as image bearers of God and therefore realize that all people hold an inherent value and inherent beauty because of this truth. In Jesus' inverted kingdom, sexuality is redeemed and restored In Jesus' inverted kingdom, checking a box off and focusing on our behavior is not the goal, but heart change is the goal. And taking responsibility for our life before the king is what Jesus is calling us to. See, in Jesus' inverted kingdom, our sin is never someone else's fault. It's never someone else's fault. And so to show the seriousness of this sin, and in this case sexual sin, Jesus uses extreme and exaggerated language. Let me just read this to you again. Verses 29 and 30, he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. We're going to come back to this in a minute to make sure we understand what Jesus is calling us to here. But let's ask our second question this morning. Why is Jesus talking about this? Why is he bringing this up? The reason is is because sexual sin is so destructive. It's so destructive to our personal lives, but it's also so destructive to our culture. It leads to broken marriages and broken homes. It leads to broken lives. Human trafficking happens because of this. Abuse happens out of this, and it affects us physically and spiritually. I think it's one of the reasons Jesus talks about it so often, that the New Testament talks about it so often, because it's so destructive. So destructive. Because when we take something that's a part of God's good design, in this case, sex within marriage, and we distort it, or we redefine it, it loses its God-given purpose. It loses its God-given purpose of being a gift for us, and an opportunity for us to worship him. And we make it something where we actually are taking from other people. We're stealing from other people. 
We're taking this from other people, and at the same time, we're worshiping ourselves. Putting ourselves on the throne is the thing that's most important. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. We worship the creation instead of the creator. We elevate ourselves over others. And when we do any of these things, we see the breakdown of homes and of families, the breakdown of relationships, the breakdown of our culture, the breakdown of society. So much of it can come back to this because this is one of the most er- the areas of one of the most significant selfishness that we can live out in our lives. See, something that was intended to be sacred becomes sacrifice on the altar of self. Something God intended to be sacred, an opportunity to give worship and praise to him becomes something that we sacrifice on the altar of self. And really that's what sin is. When we talk about sin, that's when we place ourselves over the design that God has created for us. And that manifests itself in all parts of our life. And sin is serious. And sin is serious because sin leads to death. God told us that at the very beginning, that when Adam and Eve plunged humanity into sin, when they chose self over God, when they sought to be God, that physical and spiritual death were the result of that. We're separated from God because of this. So that's why Jesus is so intense here. He's simply saying if we don't take sexual sin seriously in any form, it can lead to hell. That's why the intensity of what Jesus calls us to is so intense. Tear out your eye, he says. Cut off your hand, he says. Better that than to be thrown whole into hell. A place, an eternal place of full separation from God and his people. We bear the wrath and the the punishment for our rebellion against God. And so Jesus calls his disciples to take seriously the sin in their hearts. To take personal responsibility for the sin in their hearts and not to blame other people for it. Why is Jesus talking about this? Jesus is bringing this up as he's talking about his kingdom because he's, he's come to make you new. He came to make his people new. He came to restore your vision and he came to give you life. Which leads to our last question and what we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at this morning. What exactly is Jesus calling us to here? What exactly is he calling us to? See, Jesus is addressing an issue of our heart. He's addressing lustfulness here. But then he gives us these interesting solutions, right? Tear off your Tear out your eye if it causes you to sin. Cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. And we can look later in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus talks about this again. And he adds the foot in. He says, tear out your eye if it causes you to sin. Cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. Cut off your foot if it causes you to sin. And that's not just in reference to sexual sin. It's all sin. So this is what Jesus is calling us to. So so the question we have to ask, and I think sometimes in the back of our head, if you're familiar with this text or you've heard this preached on before, is, is Jesus being literal here? Like, does he literally expect us to do this? If, if we look at someone with lustful intent, should we tear out our eyes literally and go around blind? And some people have taken it this way. An early church scholar by the name of Origen, he castrated himself so that he wouldn't sin sexually. He was taking Jesus' commands literally. He said, better to lose a part of you than all of you be thrown into hell. So is that what we're supposed to do? I mean, is that how intense this is? Are we actually watering it down when we don't actually do this? Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who we've quoted quite a bit through this series, is helpful here again for us. He says this, we can't really answer that question. We can't really answer that question of whether we're to take this literally or figuratively because in both instances, we miss the point of what Jesus is talking about. Again, we're trying to define, well, this is, this is what we are to do. This is not what we're to do. As long as I'm making myself in the right category, I'm good to go. Let's move on. But we miss the heart of what Jesus is talking about here. 
Jesus is calling us to take sexual sin and really all sin seriously and to seek to see it rooted out in our lives at all costs. At all costs. So in some senses, this is exaggerated language, and in some senses, it isn't at all. So there's something very practical to say here, that if you're tempted to sin because you continue to watch a certain show or place yourself in a certain situation that's tempting, you can start by not placing yourself there, by not putting yourself in that situation. As one author says, essentially what this does is it buys you time for God to do a work in your life. But again, the responsibility is on you. It's not on blaming another person or the people or the situation. You are your own person. We have to understand that sacrificing personal freedoms and pleasures for the sake of Jesus is never not worth it. It's never not worth it. I know it's a double negative, but I want you to think about it that way. It's never not worth it. It's never not worth it to do that, to sacrifice something. You say, well, I have the freedom to do this. I can watch whatever I want to watch. I can go wherever I want to go. Well, in some reality, that's true, but not everything's profitable for you to do. Everything's good for you to do. When it comes to the sake of Jesus, it's never not worth it to sacrifice those things. So we can say having an iPhone is not worth it if you look at porn on it. So cut it off. Having a computer is not worth it if you look at pornography on it. So cut it off. Staying on a dating site or a dating app that continues to lead you to places of sexual temptation or sin is not worth it. So cut it off. Watching TV shows that have great storylines but a lot of nudity in them is not worth it if it causes you and leads you into sexual sin and temptation. So cut it off. Cut it off. I don't care how good the show is on HBO. I don't know how good the storytelling is. Cut it off if it leads you into sin and temptation. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. But let me also say this. This is where we need to be careful. This is where we need to be careful, and I think where we've oftentimes missed Jesus's point and the New Testament's point on what it looks like for us to actually root sin out of our lives. See, when we misappropriate this text, there's three mistakes, three things that can happen. One of the worst is, is that we can actually be disfigured and in pain, right? If we, if we misappropriate this text and we, we look at it the wrong way, we're like, look, we can just solve our problem, rip out our eyes, cut off our hands, we'll be good to go. But if we do that, we're missing Jesus' point here. We can also misappropriate this in creating a legalistic structure. It's just about checking boxes off and, and following rules, often man-made rules that we've imposed on ourselves or that someone else has told us to impose on ourselves, and we stop there and we miss the point. We miss the point of what Jesus is calling us to. And one of the other things, one of the other mistakes that will happen if we misappropriate this text in a context of community is that we can spiritually abuse people. We can spiritually abuse them. See, Sojourn, we need to understand that we are never called here or anywhere else to tear each other's eyes out or to cut each other's hands off. Nowhere in the New Testament are we called to do violence to someone else's sin. So when we do this, we spiritually abuse people. See, this kind of community er uh, effort is more akin to to, uh, some kind of forced shock therapy than it is loving and gracious and long-suffering biblical community that Jesus died for and made us a part of. See, there's only one person who has a license to do eye surgery on you or heart surgery on you, and that's Jesus, the great physician. So as God's kingdom people, as God's community, as God's family, what are we then called to do? Because we are called to help one another, right? Especially when it comes to areas of sexual sin or for really for any sin for that matter. 
what Jesus calls us to, what the New Testament calls us to, is to point one another to our great physician. To the great physician who came to set you free from sin and death by taking on your sin and death. See, as God's kingdom people, we are called not, not to idle hunt in our own lives or other people's lives. To focus so much on our sin. But we're called to say to one another, look to Jesus. We're called to encourage one another to see him and to savor him and to remind one another of who we are in Christ and to remind one another of the beauty of Jesus that it far outweighs the fleeting pleasures of a lingering glance or any kind of sexual sin. So I think too much of our teaching on sanctification, sanctification is just the, the process of becoming more like Jesus, the process of becoming more holy, So much of our teaching oftentimes is a whole lot of self-will and self-mastery with a little bit of Jesus. But self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, not the strength of man. And so if you want self-control in your life, that's not something you come up with on your own, and it's not something someone else gives to you or helps you with. It's something that comes to the Spirit manifesting itself in your life. And I just want to say, I think there's been times over the last four years as a church that we have talked wrongly about how to get sin out of your life. And it's created a culture that at times within our church is way more focused on our sin than it is our Savior. When we spend more time talking about sin in each other's lives and less time pointing one another to Jesus, then I think we've missed the point. This is important for me. It's important for our church. It's so important that we're going to spend three weeks in September talking about this in more detail. We're going to do a sermon series called Freedom. Because I want us to understand the freedom we have together in Christ, what Jesus has purchased for us, so that we can walk with one another in that. So what do we do with what Jesus is saying here then? See, I think one of the problems with this text is that we oftentimes look at this text in isolation. It's easy to go through the Sermon on the Mount and just pick out little blocks of Scripture and kind of forget that it's, it's in a larger body of Jesus' teaching. This starts in Matthew 5.1, not Matthew 5.27. Jesus is teaching on his kingdom. He's teaching on the inverted nature of his kingdom. He's calling us to come close to him. He's calling us to think differently about life. He's calling us and inviting us to follow him and to be a part of his new people. He isn't calling us here to focus on our sin, which we so often do. He's calling us to dwell with him, to abide in him and his ways and see them as as good. So if sin is a matter of our heart before it's ever a matter of our behavior, then this means that sin is not overcome through our behavior. It's overcome through a change in our heart. That's where we have to start. So there's some truths I want us to hold on to today, some truths I want us to believe today. Listen to me. Jesus came to set you free from your sexual sin. And I think some of you need to hear that this morning. Jesus came to set you free from that. He he came to to set you free from that. You are not captive to it any longer. If you are in Christ, if you're united to him, this does not have mastery over you. It is not your ruler. You are not enslaved to it. Jesus came to set you free from it. Jesus died to give you new eyes, to redeem your eyes. See, so so as much as Jesus is calling us to take responsibility for our sin, not to blame others for our sin, to be willing to sacrifice anything for the sake of walking in obedience and holiness, he's also building a tension here. He's building a tension in our lives because if if all we get out of this is Jesus is calling us to try harder and do better, then we're missing it. 
He's building attention here because it's calling us to the one we need, the one we're so desperate for, for Jesus himself, the only one who can replace our eyes, the only one who can redeem our body, the only one who can lead us out of sin with new eyes to see the beauty of our Savior and his kingdom and his ways. If we can read Matthew 5 and not need Jesus, then we're missing Jesus' point. We have to be desperate for him at this, in this. There are two texts that I think are helpful for us in this help that will help us to see what Jesus is talking about as he talks about our eyes and our hands and our feet and our bodies. Colossians chapter 3 is one of these places, and I read some of this a few weeks ago in talking about anger. It's just such an important text for us. It'd be something to be worth spending time studying on your own, spending time in, even memorizing it, seeing it come into the reality of your heart so it just kind of flows out of your life. So I want to I read it again this morning. Flip over to Colossians 3. Colossians chapter 3. I want, you, I want you to look at this in front of you. I don't want you to just listen to me in saying this this morning. In Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, this is what the Apostle Paul says. If then you have been raised with Christ. Just stop there. If then you've been raised with Christ. What is he talking about? Romans 6 tells us that when Jesus died, you died. And when Jesus was raised from the grave, you were raised from the grave. Which means that sin died with Jesus. He paid for your sin, past, present, and future, in full on the cross. And so your sin has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives within you, Galatians 2.20 says. And so if, if you've been raised with Christ, if you've been united to Jesus, if you have new life in Christ, then pay attention to what he's saying here. What are we supposed to do? Seek the things that are above where Christ is. seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Your your life is hidden with Christ now. It's hidden in God. For you've died, he says. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's the reality of who you are now. Don't think about your old life. Don't focus on the things of this earth. Don't focus on the things of this world. Set your gaze on Jesus. Verse 4 says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Jesus is coming back, and when Jesus comes back, you're going to be made fully like him. You're going to look fully like him. You're no longer going to have sin in your life at all. So until that day comes then, what does he say? Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That therefore is important. Every time we see therefore, we should say, what is it there for? What is it there for? Put to death. That's not disconnected from what he just said. Look, you've been raised with Christ. Set your minds on Jesus, not on the things of this earth. That's how you're going to put to death what is earthly in you. And what is the earthly things that are in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry, which is false worship. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. God takes these things seriously. We can't stand before God when we have these things in our life. But Jesus came to pay for that. And Jesus came to set you free from that. You can put those things to death and you put them to death by looking to Jesus, by focusing on him. He goes on in verse seven to say, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. This did define your life. This was who you were, but Christ has removed that from you. So verse eight, but now you must put them all away. And he lists off other things, anger, wrath, malice, all these things, but it includes sexual immorality, includes these passions and evil desires and and false worship. We can put them all the way. We must put them all the way, but it's not through self-effort. It's through Jesus. It's through looking to him, remembering and being reminded of the fact that he has purchased your freedom for you. See, so often we focus on our sin to try and keep ourselves from sinning. 
right? We create rules in our life, and so we focus on our sin, and we just keep our eyes on it. As long as I'm watching it, it won't master me. As long as I'm keeping track of the last time I sinned, I'll be okay. I mean, how many of us have kept track or kept time based off our sin? It's been four days. It's been five days. It's been a week. It's been a month. It's been a year. Man, we're looking back. We're focusing on the past. We're focusing on, we're defining our life by our sin instead of looking ahead and looking to Jesus. See, what Christ is calling us to, what Paul is calling us to, is to address our love, the love of our hearts, our affections, and that's going to come change through looking to Jesus. If you actually remove your eyes and your hands, you still can sin because sin resides within your heart and your mind. If you get rid of your iPhone or your computer, but you don't see the love of your heart change, the worship of your heart change, you'll find something else to worship, something else to satisfy. See, Jesus is calling us to pluck out our old eyes, to cut off our old hands and see with new eyes, eyes that he has purchased for us, eyes of our heart that give us a new vision of that which is most glorious and wonderful and magnificent, eyes that see Jesus. Another text that's helpful for us here is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. It's another favorite text of mine. And in it here, the Apostle Paul says this, verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom. If you're united to Jesus, you have freedom. You're not captive to it any longer. And then he says this, verse 18, And we all, all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. To have unveiled faces means that we have new vision, new eyes. Nothing's clouding our vision anymore. We can see Jesus. And as we behold his glory, as we see how magnificent he is and all of his ways are good for us, he transforms us from one degree of glory to another, to another, to another, to make us more and more like him. And he does that work in us. But it comes as we set our gaze and our eyes on Christ. See, what does sin do? It jacks with our vision. It ruins our sight. It affects the way we see. We're spiritually blind because of our sin. Unable to see God only able to see ourselves and our wants and our desires. Everything is gray in life because of sin. Everything's gray. Everything's blurry in life because of sin. But through the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, Jesus restores our vision. We see in color now, in living color. Things are clear to us now. It's through the cross of Christ that that comes. But see, in the here and now, if my gaze is on me, then I only see me. If my eyes are set on me and what I want and what I desire, then I only see me. But when I, by God's grace, when I lift my eyes and I see Jesus and I love him and I love his ways, I see sin for what it's worth, fleeting, dangerous, death. I want to share a bit of my story with you and be, be vulnerable with you this morning. I want to share this with you because I love you, because I care about you, because you're my family, and because I want you to experience freedom in your life. Something in my past is that I've struggled with pornography. I've struggled with it, and I, and I hated it, and I knew it was not right. I knew it wasn't honoring to the Lord. It wasn't pleasing to Him. But what allowed me to be free from the sin in my life was not accountability groups. Now, accountability is good. It's good to have men and women in your life that are reminding you of the gospel, that are encouraging you, that are asking you hard questions, that are walking side by side with you. 
But that wasn't what ultimately gave me freedom in that. It wasn't computer software. Those things can be good as well. That's not what gives you freedom. It's not what gave me freedom. What gave me freedom was seeing and believing that Jesus is better. Believing that he's better. See, when I saw Jesus as worthy of my whole life, every aspect of my life, when I saw him and I saw the world around me with these new eyes that he'd given to me, I saw my sin for what it was worth. That all it was was death and darkness. Listen, you will not overcome a struggle with pornography. You will not overcome a struggle with any sexual sin or any sin for that matter through self-will. Through making rules, through saying, I'll never do this again. No, you will overcome it by looking to Christ and being enthralled by him. Being enthralled by him. You will not be free until you see Jesus. Until you see him. And listen, Jesus is not hiding from you. He's not playing hide and seek with you. You, you see him in these pages. You see him in these people. We're united to Christ. If you have Christ, then he's in his people. You, you learn about him. You're reminded of the truth of who he is and the songs that we sing. So look for him. See him. Come close to him. Christ accomplished redemption and restoration for you so that you might see the world with new eyes, no longer captive to sin, into dimness, into darkness. You are free. You really are. I know some of you right now, in your mind right now, you're not, not, maybe everybody else, but not me. No, you really are. That's what Christ came to do. He accomplished that redemption for you, and he is transforming you from one degree of glory to another. You are free. There's a rap song. I like rap. There's a rap song by Timothy Brindle and a group called Beautiful Eulogy friend Kevin told me about this song. It's called Restore My Vision. I won't rap it to you. I don't have a beat. But this is what the chorus says. Pluck my eyes out so I can't use them to sin. Open up the eyes of my heart, renew them again, so I can see the glory of Christ, the beauty of him. Let the spirit and the word be the zoom and the lens. Sojourn, let that be our prayer. Lord, Pluck my eyes out so I can't use them to sin, but it doesn't stop there. Let's also pray, Lord, restore my vision to see Jesus, to see his glory, to see his ways as beautiful. Let's seek and see Christ in his word. Let's seek and see Christ in his people. Let's come close to the king, abiding in him, united to him, being who we are in him. Not a people captivated by lust, but a people set free and made alive. That's who you are. Jesus is calling us here to see with new eyes, with kingdom eyes, with eyes of faith, with Jesus-seeing eyes. Now, I know this can be discouraging. Because I know there's some of you in this room that are still battling. You're still waging war, and you feel like all you reap is defeat. So this can be discouraging to struggle with the same sin over and over and over again. And you have an enemy in your ear that says things to you like, really? Again, you call yourself a Christian, you call yourself a follower of Jesus, and you're back at it again? That's not from God. That's not from the Spirit. That's from the enemy. So I know it can be discouraging at those times, but there is hope. Because you are not the one who changes you. Jesus changes you. And he promised to complete the good work he began in you. He's the one that gives you the gift of faith. He's the one that gives you the ability to love him. He helps you to savor him. 
It's the Spirit of the Lord who helps you, who gives you freedom. So ask Him for help. Ask Him for help to have self-control. Ask Him for help to have a, a love and a joy and a peace that only He can give. Ask Him to help you that you would love Him more and love the fleeting pleasures of this world less. It doesn't come through self-effort. It doesn't come through trying harder. It comes through faith, even a feeble faith. It comes through faith, even a feeble faith, to believe that Jesus is better. Even in that moment, to believe that Jesus is better. So don't grow weary, friends. Don't grow weary of fighting the fight of faith and the life of freedom that Jesus calls you to. Because here's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that one day you'll have glorified eyes. And one day you'll have glorified hands. Unable to be used to sin. Unable to see anything but the beauty of our King. Hands raised in praise to the one who paid it all. Hands raised in praise to the one who poured out grace for us. Lavished grace on us. Magnificent grace on jacked up people like you and me. Grace so magnificent that it's going to take all of eternity to explain it to us. To try and comprehend the incomprehensible. That's where our eyes are going. That's where our hands are going. That's what Jesus is going to do. And one day he will return and he will bring you home and the new heavens and the new earth will come and we'll have those glorified eyes and glorified bodies. But until that day, until that day, we can do what Jesus is calling us to here and we can do what the Apostle Paul calls us to in Romans 13. In Romans 13, he says this, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Listen to this. This is so good. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Man, that's so good. If you met Jesus yesterday, you're closer to the completion of your salvation than you were yesterday. If you met him 20 years ago, you're closer to the day of salvation than you were when you first believed. And then he says this, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. And then he says this, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He doesn't just say make no provision for the flesh. That's all up to you. He says, put on the Lord Jesus, and by putting on the Lord Jesus, make no provision for your flesh. So wake up, sleeper. Open your eyes. Walk in the light. Put on Christ. Sojourn, let's help one another see and savor Jesus. And as we see Jesus, then we can show Jesus to a dark and dying and lost world around us. Together we can say, eyes off me and eyes on him. When we see Jesus, we see that what tempts us And our sin is really worthless. And so as we come to the table each week, we have another opportunity to see Jesus. Another opportunity to see him in taking communion. Because Jesus is present in the communion meal. Not in a literal way, in in the bread and the cup. He's not literally present there. But the fact that he's risen and he rules and he reigns forever. So in the communion meal, we're reminded of our union with Jesus. In the communion meal, we're reminded in what Jesus did to free us from our sin and to give us new eyes. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. We see Jesus in this meal. Our vision of Jesus is renewed at the table as we eat and we drink. 
And so as you come forward this morning, don't just go through the motions. Don't just go through the motions of tearing off a piece of bread and taking a cup to drink and hearing those words that we say every week to you spoken over you. Don't just go through the motions. Look for Jesus in this this morning. Look for him in it. Listen for what Jesus has done for you. Hear freedom. Eat freedom this morning. It's what Christ has accomplished for you. And may it help you see with new eyes as you go out this week. For those of you that are not followers of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward and take communion. Because this meal doesn't give that freedom to you. This meal doesn't help you if you don't know Jesus. So we want you to know Jesus. We want you to take on Christ. We want you to accept Jesus. So this morning, if you don't know Christ, we just ask you to hang out in your seat. It's not going to be weird. Nobody's going to notice what you're doing just hanging out there. People get up at different times anyway. Just hang on your seat. Just pray that God would save you. If you're ready to start a relationship with Jesus, you can do that today. You can pray to God and acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of grace and that Jesus is the only one who can give that to you. Believing that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross to take on the punishment for your sin, and that God raised him from the dead to give you new life. And so if you're ready to do that today, just hang out in your seat and ask God to save you today. And then come tell somebody. We'd love to walk with you in that. Maybe you're not quite there yet. We'd love just to answer questions that you have. That's why this church is here. But we want you to experience God's grace so that next week you can come forward and take communion with us as a new brother or a new sister in Christ. Those of you that will come forward, come when you're ready. Go to the front or go to the back. There'll be tables in both places. Tear off that piece of bread. Take that cup to drink. Listen to what Jesus has done for you and celebrate. He's given you new eyes to see. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the fact that that we are so helpless, but that you're our great helper, that you're our good Father, that you sent your Son to live perfectly for us, to die for us, to set us free, and that rising again to give us new eyes and new sight. And so we pray this morning, give us all the eyes to see you. Help us to remember that the veil has been removed that we can behold your glory. Help us not to be distracted. Set people free today, God, I pray. That my brothers and sisters that are sitting in this room today that are struggling with sin, would you set them free today? They might walk in obedience to you and worship of you. Help our hearts believe and help our lives to reflect that Jesus truly is better. Oh Lord, we pray that you do a work because we've been here today and now help us to respond in worship because of the grace that you poured out on us. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen.